When we think of technological innovations, the humble toilet may not be the first device that comes to mind. It's only when you don't have one that you really begin to appreciate the true value of indoor plumbing. My guest today knows this well. In fact, he built a company around it. Simon Griffiths is CEO and co-founder of Who Gives Your Crap? They make and sell toilet paper, but they're having an impact that goes well beyond the product we see in bathrooms all over Australia. The company has a clearly defined purpose to bring the miracle of toilets to the 2.3 billion people all over the world who don't have access to one. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Despite the hilarious potential for puns, the toilet paper business is actually pretty perfect for the social enterprise model. Simon and his team give 50% of their profits to a range of charities that are working towards providing water and sanitation services, infrastructure and education to millions of people all over the world. As Simon explains, he wanted to find a way to raise money for worthwhile causes, but he wanted to find a way that was more sustainable than relying on the traditional donations and grants model. At the same time, it brings awareness of the issue right into our homes and arguably into the smallest and most intimate of rooms in our houses. Colourful packaging, telling a story and reminding us how lucky we are to have a loo of our own. All right, I've been trying to set this one up for some time and I'll give a shout out to Kat Dunn from Grameen Australia for being such a great connector and helping make this one happen. All right, enough out of me. Please do jump onto the website at johntreadgold.com for all the links we mentioned today. And if you have some feelings after today's chat, then please do send us an email or get involved in the conversation on Instagram or Facebook. Okay, nothing left to do but dive in to my conversation with Simon Griffiths. Here we go. Simon, thank you for coming on the show. I've been keen to speak to you for a long time and hear all about your business. You've been busy. Where are you today? Uh, I'm down on the Moynton Peninsula today, which is where we live, but I'm just back from Los Angeles working with our team over there. So uh, we spend a few months of every year in LA, which um, is great. It's a good mix at the moment. Good stuff. Look, I think most people will know you as one of the masterminds behind the Who Gives a Crap company launched in 2012 with a crowdfunding campaign that, that worked like a charm. You made a funny video. You, you promised to sit on a toilet in an empty warehouse until you had the funds needed uh, to order your first bulk load. There was heaps of media coverage, lots of puns. But most importantly, you got people thinking about how great toilets are and the fact that so many people don't have them. Now, uh, you know, I'm sure most of our listeners should have known that story. So it'd be great seven years on to hear how it's all going, what the status of the company is, and it seems like you guys aren't slowing down. Yeah, no, it's been an amazing seven years. It's kind of awesome to look back, even just the last few years, how much has changed. And yeah, we're just so proud of where we're at today. So I think basically since that crowdfunding campaign, we, it took us about eight months to produce our first product for our customers. We shipped it out to our customers with about three months worth of supply in our warehouse. And without us doing any marketing or sales, as soon as we started sending it out to our customers, we saw our daily sales double day on day. And after five days, we sold out of that complete three-month supply that we had in our warehouse. And so we realized that there was actually a much 
bigger interest in online, you know, e-commerce toilet paper essentially. And we had to triple down our order volumes. And basically since then, we've had this huge word of mouth groundswell around us, which has just come from our customers wanting to tell other people about who we are and what we do and, and why they're proud to be a customer. And that's just helped us to continue to grow over that six or seven year period. So basically we've been able to double or triple the business every year since then. Uh, I think we've now got, as of today, about 65 employees globally across Australia, the Philippines, uh, the US, China, and we've got one person in Ireland. We've been able to take total donations from that first um, six years of trade to just over 2.5 million Australian dollars. Um, so it's been a, yeah, a really awesome, um, amazing journey. And we're just super excited to see the, the growth continuing, especially in new markets now that we're trading in the UK and the US. Um, and they're you know, our two fastest growing markets. So we're super excited about what the next few years look like. Excellent. Look, it sounds like a good problem to have with, with so much demand straight off the bat, but I can imagine that was a baptism of fire. Did you have much of a, of a business background or was it just uh, build that parachute as you jump out of the plane? Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit of business background, but but not in this specific type of business. So there was definitely a lot of building the parachute as we jumped out of the plane. We sort of talk about the first 18 months, we were really paving the road just before we were driving down it. So we really were building all of the systems and just constantly breaking them and then rebuilding them. And it took about 18 months to get to the point where we said, okay, actually now we can take more orders and know that the wheels aren't going to fall off. And so that was an awesome place to get to. And then we from there could start saying, all right, well, how do we turn up the growth? How do we drive the growth beyond just the word of mouth that you know is still our main driver of growth today? But what else can we do on top of that? Uh, and so it's been amazing to kind of build out the the marketing side of the business and and really yeah do some some great work on on what that looks like particularly for an Australian business where you know there's kind of less opportunities in terms of the marketing channels that you can play in and the the depth of the market. Yeah, and it's a unique model you guys are using, and you know that obviously added to the complexity. So you were you were learning how to run a unique business, but at the same time you had this sort of humanitarian side. So, you know, did you have more experience on that side or, or were you sort of uh, also learning at throwing the, th the two together? Yeah, definitely had some experience. So I was kind of lucky to, um, I mean, I, I sort of ended up in this space because, you know, I knew the outcomes I wanted to work on were really about social impact, but I knew the tools that I could use were um, at my disposal were more of a traditional business toolkit. And so I was really interested in how you could meld, you know, the worlds of business and social impact together. And it seemed to me like it was insane that there weren't companies that were looking at how they could change customers' buying habits by using the social impacts of, you know, what they could do with their profits as part of that buying decision. Um, and so I sort of came at it from this point of view of, it seems crazy this doesn't exist now. Let's go out and, and try building this and see if we can prove that a business model like this can be successful. And so I came at it from, you know, having spent a lot of time in the developing world, doing volunteer work, doing a lot of travel as well, and understanding how development economics looked in different parts of the world. And through that, we sort of met a lot of people that eventually gave us a lot of help in helping us to think about the best ways to make the most impact with all of the money that we generate. Yeah, I mean, you not only survived, you're, you're clearly thriving. And I think in some ways, you're, uh, as you said, it didn't exist and, and you were pioneers in some ways. So I guess to what level do you feel, you know, that you guys drove a lot of the momentum, you know, purpose-led businesses are really a, a mighty force as we approach 2020? 
when I look back, there's definitely an element of the right place at the right time. And I think anyone who has a successful business, if they're not acknowledging that part of it's about being in the right place at the right time, then they're probably not seeing the whole picture. And so for us, that was definitely the case. You know, we had this crazy idea, no doubt other people had had similar ideas before us, but it was almost like the, you know, society, the the economy was kind of ready for what we were proposing. And part of that was, you know, we had this idea just before the global financial crisis, or for me, this idea of using, you know, business as a force for good just before the global financial crisis hit. And I think a lot of kind of people's mindset really shifted uh, as the GFC showed that, you know, capitalism perhaps wasn't the only way forward. And so we were in part right place, right time. I think that, you know, in Australia, we, we've probably done a good job of being one of the companies that's been able to to really, you know, grow as a result of that. And so because of the the quick growth that we've had and the ability for us to, you know, continuously get bigger and bigger, we're probably one of the um, the larger purpose-led businesses in the country. And so part of that's meant that, you know, we've been able to add to that momentum that that we've seen in, in Australia in particular, and then, you know, expand into other markets and capitalize on the momentum that's already there. So the UK, we're seeing this at the moment where there's just this amazing kind of groundswell around sustainability-led businesses and, and impact-led businesses. And it's the right place at the right time for us in the UK at the moment. Um, but we're definitely not one of the leaders there. There's been a lot of other companies that have helped to build up that momentum and, and we're able to, to jump in and, and really be a part of it, which is awesome. Well, that's right. And, and you are a business, you know, you're not a charity and your model is that you give 50% of your profits to charities. And so I wonder, um, has that model developed? Have you had to sort of adjust it as, as you've evolved? And as you say, you've, you've grown so much. Yeah, I mean, when we first started, the very first idea that we had for this business was for it to be a non-profit toilet paper company. And we went to a, a social business incubator in Boulder, Colorado, called at the time the Unreasonable Institute. And uh, that really taught us a lot about how we could potentially take this crazy idea to market. And one of the things that we realized was that the non-profit model although it would potentially have the most impact in the early years, it would probably hold us back from being able to grow the company to its fullest because if you're donating 100% of your profit every year in order to get that out of the business before the end of the financial year, which you need to in order not to pay tax, you need to be draining you know, more cash out of the business than probably what you've got in the business, especially if you're growing quickly. And as a result, you have to take on debt to be able to fuel the future growth of the business and it, it makes the business less stable over time and more risky and therefore not a great business model. Um, and so we changed that, that model uh, while we were at the incubator and said, let's figure out how to make this work in a more sustainable, more scalable manner. And we sort of landed on the 50% number as being the one that said, you know, we're in this because there's this social problem that we want to solve. And if that problem wasn't there, our business wouldn't exist. You know, that's why we exist. And so I think we've done a good job of kind of testing that out and proving it out over time. And yeah, we think it's a a model that can hopefully be replicated by a lot of other businesses as well. And so when we look at, you know, the impact that we will have as a business today, you know, we'd love to be a big part of, of ensuring that by 2050, there's global access to toilets for everyone everywhere. But on top of that, we also want to show that our business model can generate financial returns and social returns at scale and hopefully attract more entrepreneurs and more investors into this space, which will start, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of businesses with similar models, which will then enable, you know, those businesses to go and tackle problems beyond just the sanitation space. And so that's what we really get excited by as a business. 
Yeah, really compounding those that impact. That's um, that's pretty exciting. But I just think back to that the the drawbacks of the not for profit business model, and I'm just trying to get my head around that. Are you sort of saying that the issue is that you have to spend a lot of time as a not for profit fundraising, but at the same time you then have to spend it within the year, and so those two things are a big time drag and and take your time away from doing you know what you're really there should be focusing on, which is your beneficiaries. I'm just see if we can put some numbers around it. So if you think about a business that's tripling in size every year, in your first year, you sell $100 of product and it costs you $50 to make that product. Then you know, you've got $50 left over, but you need to put that $50 into the stock or the inventory that you'll want to sell in the year ahead. If your business is going to triple, then you're going to need $150 in order to buy enough stock to be able to sell everything that your customers will be demanding in the year ahead. And you've only got $50 left over. And so you need to borrow money, which in this, in this example would be $100 on top of the $50 that you've got. And then you also need another $50 in order to make the donation that you promised that you'd make. And so you end up taking on a huge amount of debt and that debt increases every year as the business grows which makes the business less and less stable over time. And, and also it becomes really hard to find debt holders that will take that risk with you because they understand that businesses are inherently risky and you don't have any equity in the business to be able to keep it afloat if something goes wrong. And so that's kind of the biggest challenge with that model with a fast growing business that's invested in physical product. It's different if you're selling an ebook, for example, where you know you don't have cost of goods sold or inventory and you don't need to be investing in that before customers buy product from you. Um, so it's different for different types of businesses. But for our business, we really felt like the 50% model was was hitting the nail on the head. Okay, good stuff. And and that's, you know, I think there's innovation in that itself, which is really useful. And and you've said that, you know, you, you want your impact to be as much um, helping the ecosystem grow. There are drawbacks to the charity model, but then you are, you know, choosing to raise money in a different way, but then give it to charities. You know, you're an innovator. Have you thought about new ways that money can flow to have an impact? You know, it might be sort of investing directly in businesses to help them grow that on the ground are actually making a difference. Those sorts of ideas. Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I'm really excited about the the impact investing space and and seeing more and more businesses get started either with similar business models to ours, where they're looking at a profit donation model, or where they've got impact really deeply embedded into the business model, regardless of how much profits it generates. So it's just part of every transaction. So I'm super excited to see you know a lot of uh, a lot of capital going into that space over the last decade or so, which is is really awesome. I think for me, like thinking about what that means for the economy in the future, if we've got more businesses like this that are popping up and consumers are buying products from businesses who are doing good, and that's part of the sales pitch, I'm really excited about what that will do to the big incumbents, you know, the Coca-Colas of the world who will now have to really start thinking about what their social mission is in order to be competitive. And so I think we're seeing the first wave of change now with these new businesses that are popping up with social good as part of the business model or environmental good as part of the business model. But the real change will come once a significant chunk of market share is taken away from the incumbent companies and they have to start thinking about how to change their product offering in order to make it appeal to this consumer who's now more interested in, in purpose-led products than what they were previously. And so that's what, yeah, I think is um, going to be super exciting to see unfold over the next decade or so. 
Yeah, it is so exciting. I mean, I think some people call it a fad and, you know, we've seen the market is really frothy at the moment and we're sort of, are we ending the, getting to the end of the business cycle and we've got some crazy IPOs launching at one end of the market scale. So it'd be great to dig into, you know, how you see that, that second wave happening. I mean, the likes of Coca-Cola and whether they will have to find a mission and, and define that mission and whether it's simply, you know, perhaps a, a step to get there is measuring impact. And that's something you guys do and and something that charities have to do. And if uh, impact investors are going to invest, then they're going to demand um, impact measurement. So is that perhaps a step that the bigger companies, the incumbents are, are going to have to engage with? In terms of like the step being the measurement of impact? Yeah, in terms of, you know, we've got CSR departments, but I think in some ways we're now seeing the more shift to an impact model where it's, you have to define, you have to declare your impact, whether it's positive or negative. And that, that is then a balancing point. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's lots of different ways to think about it. I guess the that's probably the most academic, but I think what will ultimately win out is around what's most successful in terms of its marketing appeal. So these companies will be looking at how they can measure the dollar and result that comes from shifting strategies to be more impactful. And so they'll always be trying initially at least to look for what's the cheapest way to engage in impact. And that often means saying, you know, we donate five cents from every bottle up to a cap to $100,000 so that it can't be, you know, like us and going into an unlimited amount of money based on how successful the business is. But over time, as, you know, new companies come in, they're, they're constantly going to be looking at ways to amplify how that makes the customer feel and as a result, how likely the customer is to buy their product. And the easy way to do that is to increase the impact that it's having so that you can market it better. And so I think part of it will be about how impact is measured and part of it will be about how you can market that impact that you're having to make your product yeah, more appealing to a customer that's interested in, in that angle. Well, that's right. And I think you guys, uh, I mean, toilet paper is, is in some ways a perfect product for a social enterprise because in some ways it's a commodity. People don't really, aren't really attached to a certain brand. But you guys have, have you know, suddenly made a, a, a much more enticing opportunity sitting on the shelf or that you can have order online and added that social impact you know each each package is wrapped and so in your bathroom in that intimate place you you then have a story and you can engage with wow i'm so lucky to have a toilet and and those kinds of elements and so i wonder you know your customer base are certainly purpose-driven they want to buy things that are aligned with their values we talk about scale and this growth do you think there's a limit there that perhaps that's just a certain demographic that there's a percentage of the population that feel that way and that it might be difficult to scale that to the whole population because they just simply don't have that engagement with their values. I think that's that's definitely true. Like there's a percentage of the population that will be more likely to buy something based on their values than the rest of the population. I think that percentage of the population, you know, I'd, I'd need to look at the numbers, but I, my gut says that percentage of the population is growing. And we've seen that, you know, post GFC, there's been a big shift I think we're seeing that now with what's happening around the climate crisis and there's definitely more awareness around social and environmental issues than what there was, say, 15 years ago, which I think is fantastic. But I think the other part of that comes back to the companies that are creating these products. If they want to have the most impact, they need to figure out how to communicate their value to customers that aren't necessarily as interested in the pure impact angle. And so that means, you know, when you're selling your product, you're not leaning always on the environmental or social impact 
side when you're making your your sales pitch or, or, or putting your marketing out there you're finding ways to make your product compelling regardless of the values that you have as a business and so technology's played a, a key role in making that possible for us where you know particularly in Australia we didn't have an awesome e-commerce network you know we, we didn't have Amazon until last year and so we could deliver a lot of values to our customer by sending them product to their door for free so they didn't have to lug toilet paper home from the supermarket we can work with our customers to predict what their household usage and therefore delivery frequency should be and get them signed up to a subscription so that they'll get a box of toilet paper three days before they're going to run out and never have to buy toilet paper again. And so there's a lot of value that you can add through other parts of the customer experience or the product experience and really kind of figuring out how you can do that, I think is going to be key to the success of these products. But I think it's going to become necessary to have stronger values embedded in products that are being created. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to stand out in the crowd. Mm, so certainly you have to have that base level of quality. That's something that Adam from Humanitics explained. You know, they're competing in, in a seriously competitive space in, in having a ticketing platform. And, you know, there are no, there's no space there for, for that system to be down. So that was a, you know, a hurdle that they had to get to before they could sort of tell the value story and have that value add. So I think that's interesting. And people using your product have, a, have an intimate relationship with it. So quality has got to be higher. I'm sure they'll let you know about it. And now I wonder, my, my listeners are pretty savvy on the finance side of things. So it'd be, it'd be good to understand if your 50% pledge could affect sort of your ability to raise money in terms of a, an equity element. You know, have you sold equity to raise funds for growth? Have you considered it? I mean, do you even sort of worry about that going forward? Yeah, so we, we haven't sold any equity to date. Um, we've definitely had interest in, in selling equity, but have, have chosen not to. So the 50% model, if we take a step back and think about a 100% donation model, it wouldn't be possible to sell equity in a 100% donation model business because it's a nonprofit. And by definition, it doesn't have equity that, that is available for sale. Um, so the 50% model for us was a step in the right direction because it said, if we're growing a fast paced business, we want to have optionality on the different types of capital available to us in the future. And so 50% model meant that we could sell equity, whereas with a hundred percent model, we couldn't. And so that was a step in the right direction. What we've ended up doing is, is using debt to fund the working capital of the business. And so for the first, um, several years of the business, we were taking on debt that was being invested in that inventory that we'd be selling in the months ahead and always making sure that our debt was lower than the working capital requirements of the business. So it was all kind of caught up in our, our physical products that we had in our warehouse and could be sold down if something went wrong. And I think what's really interesting is that if we were a pure for-profit business, I don't think we would have been able to access the debt that we were able to as a purpose-led business. And that's because we found a, a debt holder who was a philanthropist who loved the idea of what we were doing, could see that we were onto something and wanted to support causes that were similar to our cause and would do that regardless of whether we existed or not. And so he saw the ability to give us debt capital as putting his money to work in a much higher impact way than just making a donation himself because if he could help our business to grow with his debt then he could turn you know the first fifty thousand dollars that he gave us into potentially the equivalent of many millions of dollars of donations by helping our business get to the point where that was possible and so we were able to work with him in a, a much higher risk environment to what you'd see a, a traditional for-profit debt holder starting to make investments in 
And that really helped us as a business and ended up turning into, I think, a really great relationship where he was loaning us money from his foundation. We were paying it back and then it was being donated out of his foundation. And so we had this beautiful piece of debt that from our point of view was creating a lot of impact. And from his point of view was creating more impact than what he could do if he was just donating that himself. That's a really interesting angle to look at from a finance perspective. But to answer your question around, you know, would the 50% pledge create any issues of investment? The people that we've spoken to have said that they'd really just think about that as being like a marketing budget. And so they kind of push it into the marketing section of our P&L and it could potentially affect the value of the business because obviously you're making that commitment on an ongoing basis. And so if you fast forward 20 or 30 years, you probably need to think about our business in the same way that you would see a publicly traded business, but our marketing expense is always going to be higher because of that 50% donation pledge. And so that would affect EBITDA and therefore the value of the company, if that makes sense. Yeah. I look, layers and layers of impact. It's really interesting. Um, and I mean, you guys are a B Corp, right? Yeah, we are. Yep. Proudly a B Corp. Good stuff. Good stuff. And so, you know, we had Anna Crabb on here a while ago and she was talking about their efforts to get the benefit company structure brought into law in Australia. Uh, would that make any difference to how you lock in the purpose side of things? It probably wouldn't make too much difference for us. I mean, we have it sort of deeply embedded into the company's DNA and our constitution, which is very difficult to change. And we've done that intentionally because if we were to sell equity in the future, we'd want to make sure that it wasn't possible for um, any mission drift for us to lose control of the mission of the business. And so it's really kind of deeply wired into who we are as a business, both in terms of our values, but also in terms of the legalities of how we operate. So I think the big difference there would be, you know, the challenge comes to what would happen many years down the track for a business like ours, if it's growing quickly, you might look to public markets to help fund the future growth of the business. And so one of the questions that we're sort of curious about is how would the 50% model hold up if we were to go through an IPO? And is it possible to make an argument that you're not fulfilling your obligations to shareholders to maximize profit if you're giving away 50% of your profit, even though that's stated as part of your you know, core reason to exist in your constitution. And so the benefit company, depending on how the legal structure of that's set up, if it allows you to place your impact before your profit, then it would potentially enable a future IPO for a company like ours without having to think through all of the Corporations Act implications of, of maximizing profit for shareholders and balancing that with the, the donation that we you know, commit to doing as a business. That's right. It is complex, but it's great to hear that, that the thinking is being done and that the benefit company structure, I think, will go a long way in, in sort of ironing that into the, the legal structures. Now, there was another question when I mentioned I was going to talk to you. A couple of people said, you've got to ask him, why do they wrap every roll of toilet paper in another piece of paper. There's anything we don't need wrapped is that. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I felt the same way. But as I've done the research uh, and I've sort of thought about it a bit more, you know, I can see that it does have a valuable marketing on one level, but, but broader than that in terms of telling the story of what you guys are doing and really bringing that home. Is that part of it? I mean, that, that's, that's maintained and I'm sure you've made decisions around that. We would be lying if we, if we were saying that part of it isn't about being able to tell our story and, and, and market the product and have people see it on shelf and be this sort of mini billboard that exists in, in bathrooms or if the wrappers are getting reused, then on presents or on you know, Christmas bonbons or whatever that is. That's definitely not the only reason that we do it. So the first and foremost, you have to wrap rolls 
like in something in order to go in that box to keep them hygienic and moisture free. Like occasionally boxes will end up left outside someone's house and get damp in the rain, for example. And if you don't have wrapped rolls, then that's just going to soak right through and really destroy the product in a way that is quite horrific. That probably isn't as big a problem in Australia as it is in, say, the UK, where um, there's obviously a lot more rain than what we have here. You know, it's obviously undesirable. We don't want our, our product left out in the rain, but occasionally that does happen. And so keeping it hygienic and moisture-free, I think, is really important. You could do that by wrapping in plastic, but we don't want to do that. And when you look at other paper wrapping options, you know, doing it in bulk, you go to about a six-pack in size before the paper becomes too weak and starts to break. And so when we looked at this problem, the engineer in me said, our product is all paper. And so if we're thinking about wrapping our product in paper and that being wasteful, let's think about how much of our total product that wrapper is on a percentage basis. And so I did the math and worked out the kind of square meterage that goes into a, a roll and a, a box of product and basically worked out that each wrapper was equivalent to about 1% of the total paper that's used to make a single roll in a box. And as a result, we said, okay, that makes sense. So let's cut the width of our rolls from 10.5 centimeters down to 10 centimeters, which will actually save us, you know, roughly 5% paper. And then we're going to use one of those 5% that we've saved to create a wrapper that goes on the roll. You could argue, well, you've saved 5% and you could save that whole 5% instead of just four of it. But um, we thought that was a great kind of compromise. And so we're always, whenever we're looking at any environmental impact, we're kind of thinking through it through that lens. So Whenever we think about carbon, we're looking at it from what are other people doing? What's best practice? How do we optimize based on what our unique solution looks like? Uh, and so that's the reason that we have um, six warehouses nationally around Australia because it cuts down the end distance to ship to a customer and we can put product into those six warehouses using boats, which are eight to 10 times more environmentally efficient compared to trucks and cut down on the final distance that has to be traveled in a truck, which is the most environmentally inefficient part of our transport process. So yeah, we're always kind of thinking through all of those elements and, and finding a solution that we think is the, the optimized solution for that moment in time. Yeah, breaking down the whole system and trying to find efficiencies, that's good to hear. And then it'd be great to understand the future. How, how are you guys seeing growth going forward? Are you thinking about different products or, or maybe different companies? Where, where do you see the, the main options for growth? We went to the UK and the US in 2017. So it's been awesome seeing those markets grow over the last couple of years. The UK, we're expecting to be our biggest market probably next year, which is just incredibly exciting to see the pace of growth that will enable that. Um, so that's awesome. We're super focused on continuing to grow in those markets as well as grow our, our existing product range in Australia. So for us, you know, if we come back to our mission of making sure everyone in the world has access to a toilet, we need to be making sure that as many people as possible are using our product. And so we're very focused on the growth of our business. And then part of that growth is, as you've hinted at, thinking about new products. So for the first time in about three years, we're thinking about new products at the moment. Uh, and we're hoping to yeah, be able to share more on that in the next six or so months. So super exciting to be able to put something into the market other than the, the core product range that we've had for the last few years. But I can't say too much more on that at the moment. All right. I was hoping we were going to get a scoop there, but we'll have to, um, we'll have to <laughs> wait and see. We'll have to stay in touch. Look, that's great stuff. Really appreciate all of that. So good to hear 
you know, sort of get under the hood of the business a little bit and understand how it all works. So appreciate that. But before I let you go, can you give us a book recommendation? What's on your bookshelf? There's one book that I've recommended consistently ever since I read it, um, you know, almost 10 years ago, and that's The Lean Startup. So for anyone that's thinking about starting a business for the first time or putting something out into the world for the first time, that's a book that's definitely worth reading. The other one that I've read recently that I think is for someone who's at a more, you know, mature stage of their business, probably at like 20 plus employees, is The High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill. And that one, for me, the first half of the book, it felt like he'd interviewed people in our business and basically written about our business and all of the like challenges that we'd gone through which meant that the second half of the book was pretty clear. He was writing about the future that we were going to have. So uh, it was kind of amazing to get that insight into some of the challenges that we would have in the future, which was just awesome. So yeah, highly recommend. It must've been a good feeling, I guess, in some ways to read that, you know, you went through the same issues and that you were building a model that others had, had trod and so that, you know, I guess you were doing things right and, and you'd stumbled through, but, but you'd made it and yeah, and then had a, had a handbook to get you the rest of the way. It was good, but also frustrating because it's anyone in our business is constantly short of time. And so you want to always find the fastest solution to something. And so knowing you've gone and solved this problem the hard way that other people had solved before you and could have told you how to do it is something that that is bittersweet. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, hopefully we've saved a few people that issue. They can they can run out and get those two books and, um, and they'll be miles ahead. Thank you, John. It's been great to chat. Good stuff, Simon. Really appreciate your time. 